Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Aaron McDaniel, and I'm here with my co-host, Klaus Vihe. Thanks, Aaron. In this episode, we're excited to welcome Jeffrey Bleich, Chief Legal Officer at Cruz, a self-driving tech company in Silicon Valley. Jeff is a prominent big law attorney and a former partner of both Munger, Tolson Olson, and Denson's. In his remarkable career, he also served as a special counsel to the former President Barack Obama and as a U.S. ambassador to Australia, and in addition to this, been the board chair at PG&E. In our conversation, Jeff shares about his time serving as the U.S. ambassador to Australia, the importance of trust building in international relations, why over-indexing on English is a common mistake when expanding to other countries, and why long-term uh, thinking is a key to successful global expansion strategy and what considerations should be taken before hiring local counsel. That and many more to come, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. You have such a fascinating career and journey just from being on multiple sides of the international piece from government to service provider legal side to operating businesses. So really excited to dig in. Thanks, Aaron. And it's just evidence that I have a undisciplined set of passions. So um, <laughs> that makes, makes I'm to organize my checkered career here. So obviously you're at Cruise now, but let's go kind of all the way back. If you can give our listeners just a, some signposts of your experience through your career. And, and then we want to dig into a few cool experiences you've had. If the focus is on international, maybe I'll try and put an international lens on it. So I was born overseas on an army base. My dad was in U.S. Army in Germany. Grew up there for a while. Was not very proficient at language because, you know, they spoke English at home and German on the base, and I never learned either one of those. And so I was one of those late talkers, but I spent a lot of time listening. I was also the youngest in the family, so no one would listen to me anyway. So that's kind of my, my MO is that I try and observe. Did pretty well in school. My parents said, you know, when my dad left the army, he was looking for the worst house in the best school district they could find. And so that's where we I went to public schools, ended up going to Amherst and then to Harvard and then on to law school at Berkeley. Very interested in international policy, applied for some fellowships, actually had done a Coral Foundation fellowship. And after I finished clerking, I clerked in D.C. Circuit Supreme Court for the Chief Justice. I did another clerkship in The Hague, went to the International Tribunal there and also attended the Hague Academy and came back and ever since then have had traveled a number of different sectors. So private sector, public sector, international and domestic, and career sort of reflects all of those things. And let's say I went to a law firm, Munger, Tolson, Olson, loved it. Great 20 years there as a partner, did a number of other things along the way, chaired the Cal State University Board and State Bar President. Somewhere along the way, someone I'd met while I was clerking, Barack Obama became elected president. He asked me to be his special counsel at the White House. I did that for the first year of the administration, and then the United States Senate decided collectively, really across the bipartisan agreement, that they all wanted me on the other side of the earth as soon as possible um, <laughs> so to deal with me anymore. And I was confirmed as U.S. ambassador to Australia, served there, done a number of international roles since then, including chairing the Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Board, serving on the East-West Center Board teaching international human rights and a number of other subjects at Berkeley Law. Now, trying to take all that international experience and business and 
private sector experience to cruise an autonomous vehicle company, which is hoping to revolutionize mobility by taking self-driving to a new level so that we drive safer than human beings and also all EV fleet. So we take billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere and we democratize mobility because EVs don't discriminate. If they're produced properly, they go to communities that are typically not served by cab companies, either because people think they won't get a big enough tip. You don't have to tip a self-driving car or that it wouldn't be safe for the driver. There's no driver, so no one feels unsafe. And also for people with disabilities, older people, giving them a chance to true mobility. So that's the vision, and we're already working to develop that internationally. Awesome. And one point of clarification, is the ambassador title kind of like a for life thing? So we continue to refer to you as Mr. Ambassador, or is that just during the period of time? There's a specific rule about this in the State Department. The only people who are actually required by law to call me ambassador still are my kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe my college roommates. I'll make them do it too. <laughs> I think, but you do carry the ambassador retired title for the rest of your life. Uh, and do you get to keep diplomatic immunity then? That whole. Oh, I wish. I go, wish. I'd love to go all the way back. So, just with the start of things, one thing Klaus and I often found with entrepreneurs like yourself were these formative experiences that you had. Can you talk a little bit about the formative experience in Germany and in other places along early on where you found that there was a world beyond your backyard in the U.S.? I mean, I think growing up in another country, it already made me kind of exotic when I first arrived in the States. And the way that my parents thought more broadly about the world, because they had been to these places. And so when they would see caricatures of what was going on in another country, they had a deeper understanding. My father you know, had seen a lot of his colleagues go off to Vietnam. It had opened his mind to concerns about our lack of understanding of other parts of the world. And the fact that that lack of understanding can cause you to make mistakes in your foreign policy and in choices that you make in the world. And that stayed with me. Also is probably what compelled me to do Fulbright. Because Fulbright was really about helping us turn nations into people again and understanding who the people are, what their values are, that they're very much like us and not confusing one with the other. I think the probably the other formative experience, which is not so much about international understanding, was that Coral Foundation fellowship that I did, that I mentioned. It's a fellowship where you do six weeks in a union and then six weeks of a corporation and then six weeks with a nonprofit and then six weeks with a utility and six weeks on a political campaign and then six weeks working in a government office. And then every Friday, you get together with leaders in various sectors and interview them. And, well, and you also do exercises training you in leadership. And I found that that was just an extraordinary year for me because it gave me a, a glimpse into all these different sectors. And it made me appreciate that all of them are doing something important. And all of them thought that the others weren't doing anything important. <laughs> and so there is a sense of underestimating the value of other institutions that exist because you're not part of them. I found that there was a lot to be drawn from working at the intersection of all these different sectors and also being humble about knowing that you can't do it all from one sector. 
And that's, I think, been very useful for me in, in terms of taking companies that have new technology and learning how to work with regulators, learning how to work with legacy industries, learning how to work across different jurisdictions and different cultures to make them successful. Jeff, I just want to say one thing. Your LinkedIn profile is very, very modest. You cannot get all these details from what you just have shared with us on LinkedIn. So you're revealing a lot of interesting insights from your past career and journey. And one of the things I just wanted to call out is that I remember vividly the first time I met you. It was in San Jose. I can't remember if it was a US commercial services event or it was Austria. I have a feeling it was Austria doing this event down there and you were doing a keynote speech. And I just remember vividly that was in sort of the early stages of my Silicon Valley career. I was really drawn into the presentation that you actually made and I approached you back then. And yeah. the warmth and the empathy and the welcoming nature of you just have ever since impacted me being a professional in Silicon Valley. So I wanted to call that out. When you talk about humble empathy, you are clearly sort of the, is it epitome of that? Or what's the word for it in English? Sometimes I forget. Epitome. Epitome, epitome of that. Exactly. So I just wanted to call that out. When you have been working at, for example, the role as an ambassador, how have you sort of taken a little bit more of that ecosystem mindset as you talk a little bit about in terms of bringing in collaborators to support, I guess, companies coming from the US into Australia, but also Australian businesses wanting to come into the US? How have you sort of built that sort of collaborative platform to help companies be successful? I think there were two things that I did that were a little bit different. One was, you know, I didn't prioritize national security over economic security and cooperation, because I see them as essentially one and the same. The, the more secure we are economically, the more stable we will be politically, and also the more influence we can project around the world. And so they aren't separate things with one more important than the other. They're two sides of the same coin. So for me, our commercial service was a critical part of my job as ambassador. And so i I didn't treat it as you know stepchild. It was, it was our, they were all our children. And so I think the commercial service really um, felt empowered, felt respected, felt appreciated, and felt you know that I was listening to them and they came up with creative ideas and that they could get me to do whatever it took to you know promote American business, you know, including dressing up as Elvis a couple of times. So you know we you know, I was I was game for whatever was gonna help America expand its important relationship with Australia. We're the largest investor in the world in Australia. And also, we're one of the largest exporters, too. You know, we've got a, a substantial positive trade balance with them. So it's an important relationship, and I wanted to build on that and strengthen it. I think the other thing that I probably did that was a little different was, you know, I brought a lifetime in the commercial world to the role. And one of the advantages, I think, of having a non-career diplomat serving as ambassador is that you do bring those other dimensions into the job. I think there's always a fear that, you know, non-career ambassadors are just going to be sort of political hacks or just a, a liability out there <laughs> waiting to happen. But uh, there had actually been a study done about this. And the person who did it explained to me that what they found was that ambassadors who were non-career, when they failed, they failed much, much worse than career ambassadors. But when they succeeded, they often succeeded better 
because they were respectful of the traditions of the department and they were willing to learn and be educated by the leaders there. But then they brought these other dimensions in and tools that they had learned in the private sector that were also helpful and built the embassy. So I tried to model myself after that group. I don't know if I succeeded, but that was always my goal. And the different aspect you brought in as well was the ability to play Elvis as well at different events. <laughs> well, yeah, that was part of it. Part of it was really getting to know people's products and being curious. And I would spend time, instead of just getting a bunch of talking points from them, so I sounded like, oh, well, here's another shill for an American company telling us the same thing that their executives just said. I wanted to really understand their products and their value and opportunities for myself and to see it through that lens. And I think the U.S. companies themselves appreciated that because they didn't expect that level of curiosity from American diplomats. But then I think the other thing was I could really make use cases and I could right. talk about areas for cooperation when I talked to my Australian counterparts. And American companies knew I was fighting for them, but the Australian government knew that I was actually thinking about the value from their perspective and trying to make the case of how they would get the most value and not you know do this because we're American. There's a point of having empathy. You have empathy for both parties, right? Yeah. In that economic play. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about then having been in that role, having sort of liaising between those two parties, what were some of the challenges for companies that wanted to enter into Australia? Did you see any sort of common trends there where you saw them? Okay, hey, there are certain things that they could improve upon and be a bit more prepared for. I think there were a couple of things. One is you need to know the culture that you're going into. Australians are great. It's probably good that you know they had to you know, that my term came to an end because I would have. I would have probably gone native. I really like Australians, people, the government, the optimism that they bring. And I think a lot of Americans see themselves in Australia. And so they just assume that Americans and Australians are so similar. But there are subtle differences. There is a much greater sensitivity about personal data in Australia. In privacy, they had different rules, for example, regarding health data because they've had so many issues with invasive species. There's a tremendous sensitivity there. The risk of infectious disease spreading or invasive from condition, invasive plants or animals. And there were some other areas in terms of how capital is raised and spent. Very cautious, I think, about risk capital and less forgiving of failure than in the United States. And those are things that you would only know if you spent some time with people who are in Australia, people who know Australia, people who and be there yourself for some period of time and just kind of pick it up in the ether. There's real value to understanding the culture first, because otherwise you're going to make some mistakes thinking that you're still in New York or Los Angeles or Kansas City when you're making these pitches. I think the other mistake that people tend to make when they come in is thinking, let's crawl, walk, run. So we'll send one person there and we'll have them set up the office and build it from there. But if you come in with one person in Australia or most other countries, it's seen as a lack of confidence, a lack of commitment, and you'll be gone in a year. And why should I waste a lot of effort getting to know you and, and help you when this is probably not going to last? I think you have to show up with some real force. 
and not in a threatening way, but in a way of saying, you know, we believe in you and we're making an investment right from the very beginning. Even though we're going to lose money at first, we believe in you. And that sounds a really powerful message. The way you build trust is by being vulnerable first. You're letting the other side know you can trust me because I'm already trusting you to treat me fairly and to give me a chance. I don't even know where to start. There are so many great things that you had just said, obviously, about the trust piece is very important. The other piece of being in market, Klaus and I label that as localization discovery, and that's not something that you can do remotely. I think the other thing, just to state for the record, and we're familiar with this because we work with a lot of governments, where in other countries, the entrepreneurs look to and utilize those government resources to help them expand in new markets. And I think a lot of American companies Maybe they don't realize it or don't think otherwise, but they don't utilize a lot of the resources that are available that you and and the rest of the department have provided. So, but to talk a little more about Australia, my mother, 30 years ago, she's been a travel agent for years and became an Aussie specialist. And so I remember like going to these Aussie nights. I've been to Australia myself and everything, but it really ties into this concept that Klaus and I saw a lot during our research where an American company will think, Let's go to UK and Australia because they speak English. That's the right markets to expand to. And and we label that as a familiarity bias where Mm -hmm. you often think about it and and you were just highlighting some of the differences. Can you talk a little bit more about that notion of companies who think that way of going to where English language is spoken and that being the right path and how there's a lot under the surface you really have to think about for Australia as an example? People tend to over-index on English for a variety of reasons. One is in Business communities around the world, in many, many countries, English is commonly spoken. And so the notion that it's because it's the dominant language, it's going to be an easier environment. It's not even on being able to speak English. It's not necessarily the easier environment. There are plenty of other environments where it's a natural second language, whether it's Holland or many other countries. And the second thing is things that I found more valuable is where you've got sort of common values. A respect for rule of law, you know, a well-developed tradition, particularly for things like, you know, dispute resolution, arbitration, how contracts are written, intellectual property rights, issues relating to employees and how they're treated. It makes it much easier to avoid problems at home, low corruption countries. And that doesn't have anything to do with the language it's spoken. So focusing on values as opposed to something as simple as language. I think the third is that Australia was actually a very good country for Americans to go to for those reasons. And it was a good springboard into the rest of Asia for companies that were first dipping their toe into uh, trade with Asia. Because Australians are, you know, an English-speaking Commonwealth country that has, that by virtue of geography, has always focused a lot of its trade with Asia. And it's had to develop those relations over many more years than people in the United States originally did. And so they're kind of good Sherpas for, I think one of the things you look for is not only a country that has friendly relations with the United States, but also has friendly relations with other countries that you may may want to market to. And one of the things I discovered is that there are things that Americans would say that would kind of cause concern in other nations. But if it was said with an Aussie accent, everyone loved it. So Australians are very good partners to have as you're expanding and looking for those kinds of partnerships and for regional outreach is a valuable thing to do. 
It's actually funny. I was just thinking about the dynamic with Klaus and I too, Klaus being from Denmark. There's some times where he comes out with his more direct Danishness and we leverage that in different operations for our company. One of my favorite lines is the Australian ambassador, Dennis Richardson, was in the U.S. visiting me in, in California. At some point, we'd been doing some traveling together. He goes, you know, mate, Australians, we're just like Californians, except we love America. <laughs> <laughs> You've been touching on this topic and to fit in one of our frameworks, we have this spider chart we call localization premium analysis. It talks about how you have to change your business, sort of deviate away from your core model when expanding to new markets. And one of those categories under the operational side is what we label as admin or administrative premium. And I think that's where a lot of your expertise lies. Everything from, do you need to create a new corporate entity to intellectual property protection to compliance and regulation and local politics and things along those lines. And we use the analogy of an iceberg when you look at go-to-market versus operational, because often companies think, well, change the language, change the pricing and the marketing, and you know we're good. Let's go to market. <laughs> There's so much under the surface. Yeah. We'd love for you just to talk a little bit about that admin category and how there is a lot under the surface and how you should think about it. Yeah. Well, I love the spider web that you've created. And it's I tend to think, and maybe it's my legal training, <laughs> but I tend to think of this as risks rather than premiums. And I love the fact that you focus on the positive and the premium. So I may, I may have to adjust my own language on this. We actually have a little story around that because originally we called it international debt. And everyone who was in the space was like, don't call it that. It's too negative. Let's have a positive spin. So we iterated. Yeah, no, no. And this is good. You've clearly identified the key issues that you have to work through. So on the administrative premium, it's that every country has both a different set of the sort of policy appetites, policy views. What one country thinks is, you know, fair treatment, another one you know, may think it's shocking. So really understanding policy, but even more understanding the politics. How do these decisions get made and who makes them and will influence their direction? And how can you make it a win-win for them? Those are a whole set of moves that need to be well-considered as you're entering a new market. Because if you get crosswise with your regulators or you misjudge how they will respond, either based on politics or other policy norms that have become traditions for the country, you'll you know, have these either awful surprises or just a consistently underwhelming results and you can't figure out why. So really understanding those two things, the policy and the politics, is the big part of the administrative premium. So for example, I spent a good amount of time addressing issues of data localization. And what I ultimately figured out was it wasn't so much that Australia didn't trust our clouds. It's that they didn't understand, first, what our privacy norms were and how we would protect the privacy. Second, our clouds were more secure than the ones that would go up locally and that would actually protect their data better by virtue of the fact that it was stored in a cloud that you know, was generated in the US. And third, to identify those areas who have highest concern relating to um, the privacy of data so that we could develop special ways of compartmentalizing, locking in that data in a, to a level of, that gave them some confidence. And then also understand differences between the parties and how they needed to, you know, explain this to their constituencies and to work with them on 
on that as well and be supportive of the narratives that they were putting out so that they couldn't be embarrassed by their political adversaries, you know, and really staying neutral in how we worked with the different political parties. So that's, for me, that's the administrative premium. I could talk about some of the other premiums just from, you know, experience, but that's what you asked about. That's great. We have a lot of stories in our book where we also share an example like Uber, right? When they were expanding into multiple different countries and they were a little bit more disruptive in their approach, more yeah. asking for forgiveness later, instead of building bridges with regulators, governments, et cetera, they were basically pushing the model through these different municipalities around the world that obviously left a lot of sort of burnt relationships and ended up them not being successful. So completely agree with your point. Yeah. And also when we talk about the notion of expansion, you need to find ways to localize the business. And here we talk about two key filters you need to sort of pull your business model through, which is government regulation and culture. And you address the first part, which is very much on the government and regulatory side of things. Mm -hmm. Did you see any sort of specific cultural things when it came to expansion, where you saw a lot of companies fail, like either in conducting business directly with the client or whether it was more from a consumer perspective, did you see some some specific issues there as well? No, I mean, I think about some of the models that worked very well when I was there. And some of them were tech-focused and some of them were more traditional products. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One was, you know, both LinkedIn and Salesforce came to Australia during my time there. And they both did phenomenally well in Australia. In fact, I think Salesforce is now building one of their major headquarters, a building that's almost as tall as the one they have in San Francisco in Sydney. And they have really made a commitment to Australia. And LinkedIn has more individual LinkedIn profiles in Australia than there are professionals in Australia. A lot of them have more than one LinkedIn profile. <laughs> so they've had extraordinary, I mean, unfathomable market penetration. So, and in both cases, they did a little bit what I was describing. You really spent time learning, learning the market, learning the country, getting to know leaders, spent some real time and resources at the beginning, building a team with a lot of locals involved in leadership positions, avoided the U.S. bias of land and expand using Americans, but you know, have a, have a handful of people that you know there, a handful of people from the U.S., and that way you're bringing U.S. systems and strategy, but also adapting it to the needs of the host government and the host country. And I think they had a combination of patience and impatience. They were impatient with the things they could control and patient with the things they couldn't, and they knew the difference. Another company that did that very well, which is, you know, in the agriculture space or you know food was Cliff Bar, which is a energy bar company and they came in, they had no presence, but they just went to all the bicycle shops and also to all the uh, marathons and triathlons and just any any place where athletes were. Just handed out bars, were supportive of all these competitions and just became trusted and they spent money early and built a lot of appreciation and trust and a lot of fans because people would beat the bars and like them. And they weren't worried about what was our ROI in the first quarter. It was, you know, we're building a long-term relationship here and it's going to cost money to make money. 
seems a little bit similar to Airbnb's expansion as well, where they tapped into this community culture of runners. And it seems like, you know, Cliff Bar as well tapped into that sort of sports segment as well in terms of cyclists and so forth. Another thing that I just wanted to call out, you talked about there's more LinkedIn profiles in Australia than there's actually people. I guess the people from New Zealand finally have something to combat against because Australians say that there's more sheep than New Zealand people in New Zealand, right? So <laughs> I need to have something to, to go against them with, right? Anyways, <laughs> bad joke out there. Sorry. No, no, no. You have more, there are more digital Australians than Australians. Right. Exactly, exactly. There you go. There you go. There you go. Anyways, you talked a little bit about team building, right? And that's yeah. something that we've been focusing a lot on as well with the book, where in particular, we talk about the bridge between local knowledge and company knowledge. And that's really, really important, right? Local knowledge being understanding local business experience, have local language skills, local networks, and then also pride it in the local culture as well. But then also the company knowledge, understanding the company core values, culture fit, et cetera. So when you assemble teams, you need, really need to understand how to build this bridge. And it's often not enough just by sending that American expat business person over to Australia and say, hey, you're going to go tackle this market. But often important to build a team that also understands the local ecosystem there as well. It sounded like you said that the Salesforce and LinkedIn were really good at these things because they understood that it was important to build this bridge. Did I understand that correctly or not? And do you share the same sort of perspective on this? The leadership there was consistently hybrid. And I think that worked very well because, it, you know, as you said, you're, what you're really trying to do is extract the unique benefits, knowledge, skills that come from both countries and the insights that come from both countries and create a, you know, a, a blended culture where people aren't thinking well, you know, we need to ask the Australians for this. We need to ask the Americans about that. It's got to be much more of we want to be one team. And that means we're just sharing information constantly to the point where you don't really at some point remember where it came from. That's when you've had real success. And I found that with those teams. I also found that, frankly, in the um, U.S. relationship in the national security space with Australians. I went to a briefing at Pacific Command in Hawaii where about half the briefers were Australian. And I said, did you bring them in for me? And they're like, no, they're, they're part of our team. They have full-time roles and um, in Pacific Command, even though they're from the Australian Defense Force. And they said, look, we have common challenges, common interests, and we're going to be much stronger you know, together as a unit because no one's got all the answers to themselves. And so the more we think of ourselves as one combined team of allies, the better we'll and more effective we'll be. I like that litmus test. When you get to the point where you don't know where an idea came from, that's showing good partnership. And it actually reminds us of one of our interviewees, Paul Williamson, who talked about when you're looking for partners, the sign of a strong partnership is when you feel like you could switch roles yeah. and each organization would make the same decisions that the yeah. other did to show that alignment. So before we move on to being a little more future looking, one practical question we had, because this is something that came up in some of our research, has to do with the right strategy when you're looking to better understand and establish your presence legally in a country. You know, the notion of the fact that that a general counsel or otherwise who comes from the headquarters country is not going to have the expertise in every single legal jurisdiction. And often a good idea is to hire a local counsel. 
and there, there's two things. You know, one is is what is the right way to think about hiring that local council and and find them. And then two, transitioning your role so it's not just actually being the legal mind, but managing and understanding, you know, through another layer what happens to make decisions. It's been nice because I've seen other companies do this, you know, do it well or do it poorly. And now, you know, it's my responsibility to do that with Cruise. So, for example, we've already announced that we're going to be the exclusive provider of robotaxi services, our autonomous ride hail for Dubai. And we've also announced our plans to um, work with Honda in Japan in establishing robotaxi service there. We're doing precisely what you described. And we have operations in Munich and we have some other operations around the world. So, you know, I've had to figure out what are the situations where you need outside counsel on the ground in those countries. And truth is always, I think the, what I look for is first, have they worked with American companies before? It just saves a lot of time in terms of their understanding what our interests would be. And also we can better assess how they've managed to work through those issues with people on the ground, then they know the differences and the places where Americans tend to have blind spots. So it just tends to be more efficient when you can find people who've been on the ground there for a while, but have worked with American businesses effectively in the past. I also tend to look for things other than just legal firms. I tend to think of if you get to the point where it's a legal issue, you've probably already messed up. You should be better able to recognize a risk in lots of different dimensions, because it's a failure to deal with risk up front that often leads to a case spiraling downward until it's a legal matter. So lawyers help you see around some corners, but not all of them. And so I would look at, I tend to look at political risk, I look at the security risks, financial risks, reputational risks, you know, the, a whole variety of things that require consulting groups. So I, you know, have a handful of consulting groups that I trust. And and if they have, you know, a really good thought partner in that region, I'll go to them along with lawyers. And I find that that actually saves me money and legal fees <laughs> if you do it right. Those are some really great insights how to think about it. One thing, and, and this is building a little bit off of something that, that Klaus was mentioning before when he referenced Uber. What we've found, I, I think this is a combination of both changes in mindset on the government side, but also changes in mindset in in these companies becoming more global class as we label them. But when it comes to working with local regulators, you know, there's a different mindset of, like Klaus said, not just the ask for forgiveness later, but find a way to partner. And and one story that Klaus and I know just because we lived in San Francisco at the time was what happened with like electric scooters and how like one day they just appeared and then the city county was like, "Uh uh-uh. We're not going to do this all over again. If you want to work with us and operate, we need to work this out now. And then all of a sudden, they were all gone. I think local regulators are understanding you know, to get ahead of it, to not let that Uber situation happen again. What is the right way to, to think about it? You've talked about a little bit about building the relationships and otherwise, but just in that context and future looking, what is the right model to have that global class mindset working with local regulators? Well, first, it's a long-term mindset. You know, If you're going to do business there, it's got to be a long-term relationship. And that means it's got to be durable with political changes there, government changes, policy changes, personnel changes between people in your company, all those things. And often, too often, people just assume, well, everyone wants to make money. So we'll just make this about money and 
everything will be fine. It it doesn't work that way. And it often means that the people who will work with you on those conditions, that it's just about, you know, how much money will come in in the short term that they will realize or they will be able to claim credit for or whatever. Those aren't the kind of people that you want to have long-term relationships with and who aren't thinking long-term with you either. There was a great line by um, Warren Buffett. He was saying that you should treat every business relationship like a marriage. And it's never a good idea to marry for money. But when you're already rich, it's just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you're a successful business, why would you go into a purely transactional kind of relationship like that? You need more depth to it. The first thing is really looking for thinking long-term. Second thing in terms of working with other governments and making it successful is having a, um, again, it's empathy. It's putting yourself in their shoes and anticipating, you know, what do they respect and what do they fear? And try and help them showcase the aspects of what you bring to the table that they respect and how you're going to help inoculate them against some of their fears. Totally. What you just said in terms of empathy and everything, I think there's a quote that I heard you say in one of the you know many videos out there on YouTube about you. You make a living from what you earn, but you make a life from what you give. Yeah. Can you tell you a little bit more why that uh, sort of statement is important to you? I see this with many people who I've come up through my career with now. And the ones who are always sort of thinking that everyone else is trying to get my money and I just need to hoard it and hang on to it and not trust anyone. They had far fewer relationships. They had much more fragile and brittle networks. They had less creativity. And they end up not only having lives that feel smaller, but they didn't hold on to their money very well because you can't leverage. Whereas people who start out with a generous spirit and say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna support other causes that I that I believe in. This money isn't just for me; it's to build a better community. You know, I want the people who are in my company to feel valued and honored. I want them to live in safe neighborhoods, and that means paying them enough, but it also means contributing to the community directly and supporting things that have very indirect benefits uh, to our company, but nonetheless support it. And in doing that. You know, you do it because it's the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, it also, you do better. You have a better life. You feel better about who you are and who you see every day. There's not, you don't encounter all these resentments. You don't spend your days living in fear. And weirdly enough, you generally end up with more, more friends, more wealth, more joy. So give, it works. Even if you're someone who that's not your natural orientation. Just trust that enough. And you just summarized the epilogue of our book and took it even farther. So uh, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> we want to make sure we capture the last part of the, the podcast, which is the three pieces of advice. Short questions, short answers. Are you ready to go down the elevator, Jeffrey? Sure. Awesome. What one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a, a career in, in international business? Sorry. Travel. Get to know people everywhere in the world. And when you are in the US and you meet someone who's from another country, spend time with them and get to know them, speak with them, be curious. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? I I think I've said this, but show commitment. 
you commit from the beginning. For business people who are into golf, you're going to hit the ball well. You've got to have confidence in your swing. You can't sort of chip at it. You just swing through it. What one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? Don't be so hard on yourself. When you're early in your career, you beat yourself up a lot. Every mistake you make, you think of as catastrophic and you, you know, you worry and all that. The thing is, if you care enough on to worry, you're going to be just fine in this world because you're going to keep learning. You're going to keep trying. You're going to keep getting better. So don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. It's the best education you can get. Awesome. So just to you know, echo what Klaus had said before, I feel like a lot of wisdom has been shared over the last few minutes. And thank you for your generous spirit in sharing these things. I mean, so many great things you said from spending time in the market, learning, building trust by being vulnerable first and empathy. Don't over-index on English. Find common values instead of language when deciding where to expand. Learn how decisions are made locally and find ways to make it a, a win-win within the ecosystem there. Having that right combination of impatience and patience and knowing when to use both. As you said, you know, having this long-term mindset, showing full commitment over just the crawl, walk, run. And you know, look for those partnerships where you have you know, ideas. You don't even know where they came from because there's such connection. And always get local outside counsel, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you summarized it well. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Thank no, you. thank you, Aaron. It's good to know all the wisdom I've accumulated can be said in less than 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>